We are continuing our series, Ruth, A Redemption Story, with a message entitled, Willing and Able. (coughs) Now, I have a confession to make. I love a good romantic comedy. And you may not know this about me, and maybe after hearing this, you'll lose respect for me, if you had any. Um, But I enjoy films that actually cause me to tear up a bit. Chanel thinks I'm crazy. Um, I actually really like sad movies. Um, she does not. Uh, but I like romantic comedies as well because you can tear up a little bit and laugh, so it, it all works up. Um, and, and now while this film isn't a romantic comedy, it probably comes as no surprise to you that I really enjoy and tear up when watching the uh, final film of the Lord of the Rings trilogy <laughs> nearly every time I see it. I remember watching it in the theaters for the first time um, I ended up watching it in the theaters for about six more times. Um, but I remember, like, I don't know if you've ever seen Return of the King, but there's, like, three or four false endings, and each one tearing up a bit. And then there was more, you know, and, uh, yeah, so that's me. Uh, but I do enjoy a good romantic comedy. You know, a few of my favorites are My Big Fat Greek Wedding, My Life in Ruins. Um, I apparently enjoy movies by this same person. Um, and And even You've Got Mail, though... Please, please don't tell my wife that I actually like watching that one. <laughs> I've also got to include in that list The Princess Bride, which is it's just a classic, right? It's a good one. It's a good one. Now, one thing in common in nearly all romantic comedies is the moment of tension, usually about halfway through. And that's, that's my phrase for it. I think there actually is a technical term for what that is, but tension is introduced. It's usually somewhere around the second act. It's the moment where everything seems too good to be true, right? Everything seems on the verge of collapsing. Uh, It's the crisis moment. It's where the characters seem intent on actually not ending up together. You kind of want to reach through the screen, if you could, and shake the characters a little bit. You want to scream, hey, he loves you. He just doesn't know how to tell you that. I remember, uh, well, not remember, it's, we watch this movie every year, and every year I kind of get this moment of anxiety watching the classic film White Christmas. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. This is the time of year you, you maybe bust that out. I get very anxious watching this movie during its moment of tension, even though I've seen it each year and know exactly how it's going to go. But there's this moment where the character Betty Haynes, Uh, played by Rosemary Clooney, uh, misunderstands Bob Wallace's intention for the show that they're putting on for uh, this retired general who's now a hotel owner, an inn owner. And uh, she breaks off their fledgling romance. She runs off to the city, and uh, she's going to go get work there. And, of course, he wins her back, right? That's how all good romantic comedies end. Uh, But there's this whole tense moment where it just seems like it's all falling apart. And if I spoiled that movie for you, I'm sorry, but the spoiler embargo ended quite a while ago. The movie came out in 1954, so um, I don't even have to give a spoiler alert for that one. If, if you haven't seen it, it's your fault. The story of Ruth may be one of the best romantic stories, love stories of all times. And if we could maybe understand a little bit more of the language used by the author, we would even see some moments that seem to be kind of funny. Mike's going to bring that out, I think, next week a little bit. Um, But there's also moments of tension. This is a true story. It's not just a a fable that we watch on the screen and 
you know, kind of get angry with the characters every now and then when they're acting a little foolish. These events have all been ordered by God. And in chapter 3 and at the beginning of chapter 4, we find some tension. A little bit of crisis, although perhaps it's not clear and obvious all the time. But in chapter 3, we have this crazy idea from Naomi. At least it seems that way. Ruth will propose to Boaz. And then he will redeem her in their land. Will it work? Will this plan that they put together, that they put in motion work? Or will Boaz run the opposite direction? And so today we're going to look at three things. The plan, the proposal, and the promise. And I think I just named three Hallmark movies in doing that. Um, We'll leave that alone. Uh, but, you know, they, they kind of all seem like they could be, like, individual Hallmark movies uh, where you have this moment of tension added, I guess. I don't know. Uh, let's pray. Father, we do thank you uh, for this rainy, dreary morning. Uh, but we do thank you that we are here together and that we are able to gather and worship and, and hear more about you, that we're able to sing about you, that we're able to encourage one another that we're able to catch up about all the things that have gone on throughout our week and hopefully um, during the the course of all of that, that we are pointing each other to Christ and encouraging one another. Lord, I just, I thank you for all that you are doing, um, all that you've done throughout this study as we've looked at the book of Ruth, all the things that you've showed us and and encouraged us in and built our faith upon. Uh, Lord, I just pray that as we look at it today, as we look at this third chapter, that you would speak to us again. Let our eyes see what you have for us to see. Lord, we just uh, give you praise, and in Jesus' name, amen. So the plan, coming to a theater near you. We're going to look at this like we did last week, uh, where we're going to take each section and break down each uh, paragraph of scripture at a time there for each section rather than read the entire chapter at once. And so let's read chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Oh, that's where I put that. Uh, let's see, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother in law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she, Ruth, replied, all that you say, I will do. So when we last saw Naomi and Ruth, we saw God's abounding grace toward them. We looked at this last week. They had received the favor of Boaz and were now safe from starvation. Their station in life was looking better and better and better. And hope was beginning to bloom. We pick up with Naomi hatching a plan to bring about the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. Now I want to mention as we begin to look at this a little bit deeper that in biblical study and interpretation, we should know that not every narrative is normative or prescriptive, meaning not everything in scripture is written with you or me in mind uh, with the purpose of us treating this passage as directly applicable for our life. What I mean by that is all scripture is profitable, but it doesn't mean that we go and live and plot out our lives by this plan that Naomi has hatched here. Um, 
This is part of the story. It's a narrative. And so we don't take that and go, we'll see in Ruth chapter 3, verses 5, it says, if I want to, or verse 4, if I want to find a husband, I should go and cover his feet. (laughs) That is a really good way to find a husband. Um, Might I advise no? (laughs) It's good for us to study these things. It's good for us to study these passages and these stories like we're doing right now. Uh, But not everything in scripture is something that we should attempt to do. There are appropriate principles and applications we can draw from these stories. But the main thing that we should see is how does this fit within the greater arc of redemption, in the story of redemption that the scripture tells. You know, as a father of two lovely daughters, I will not be making them memorize these first five verses as a method for finding a husband. We won't, we won't be doing that. This story is full of tension, like I've already mentioned, and a little bit of scandal as well. Not all of the customs and actions are explained. Some of them are just simply described. We don't have to figure out every detail of this. Why they did everything that they did. We can look at what's been recorded, uh, but really we shouldn't try to make too many big points out of speculation. So we're going to go over it. I'm going to try to explain what I am able to explain, but there's some elements of this that we just don't understand culturally. And so we just have to kind of accept it as, as is. Now, just as the law gave provision and commands for those who are widowed, orphaned, or impoverished uh, to glean, as we looked at, so too it gave provision for those who were without an heir to continue the family line. This was called leveret marriage. And I'm probably pronouncing leveret wrong, but that's how I'm going to say it. In this case, Naomi's family was without a male to continue on their name. Uh, Elimelech owned a parcel of land, just like Boaz owned some land. Um, And so because Elimelech was dead and because his sons were dead, that land would have to be sold unless there was someone who could fulfill the law for these provisions to marry um, either Naomi or Ruth. Now, Naomi was too old. She was not going to have any more children. And so Ruth was really the only viable uh, candidate here. But she didn't have another son either for Ruth to marry. And typically the way this uh, provision worked, the way that this command worked, is the brother of the deceased would marry the man's widow. Um, And he would be obligated to do so. That was the command, that he would be required to do this. As strange as it might appear to us in our culture today, there's nothing questionable or unseemly about this. This is what God had commanded. And really, there's nothing wrong with what Naomi is doing, even in plotting this course of action. And perhaps the narrator expects this, and that's one of the reasons he goes to such great lengths throughout this book to just speak of how high character uh, these two people people had, uh, Boaz and Ruth. They, They were people of good and noble character. And we see that throughout the story. So let's read a little bit about Leveret marriage. Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that is, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife... Then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. 
Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Some interesting stuff there. Really what we're seeing is the brother of the deceased was required to do this. Uh, Boaz was not a brother. He was not obligated to do this. He didn't have to worry about um, having his house be known as the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Under this provision, um, a dead man's relative uh, beyond the brother might agree to marry the widow. So someone like Boaz, um, he might agree to provide for her. And should a child be born from this union, they would inherit the dead man's property. If there was a brother to the dead man, he would be required to do this. And this could be expensive for the kinsman redeemer because you're not just getting married. You're buying land. And if you didn't have the finances to do so, this would come at great cost to you. Naomi's plan is not manipulative and she's not attempting to trap Boaz or Ruth in something that they wouldn't desire to do. I believe she is simply organizing the next steps in order to bring about this leveret marriage. Naomi gives very specific instructions for what Ruth was to do. She tells Ruth to go to Boaz at the threshing floor. Now the threshing floor was a communal gathering place, usually a hilltop location that had been cleared to the bedrock. Uh, the local farmers from the village or other neighboring villages, if they were near enough, would gather at harvest time for winnowing or threshing uh, their grain. They might meet at night most commonly because the night breezes were better for the separation of the chaff from the grain. Threshing the harvest was a time of celebration. And remember again, Israel at this time uh, doing what was right in their eyes. Um, it was not necessarily a safe environment. There was lots of prostitution. Um, often the celebrations led to drunken debauchery and there was a lot of violence as well. And so the farmers would sleep close to their harvest of barley to protect it from thieves. And it's into this setting that Naomi sends Ruth to Boaz. Naomi tells Ruth to bathe, put on some perfume, likely some olive oil mixed with fragrant aromatic ingredients. And she's told to change her clothes now, while these are very practical suggestions to us, you know, it makes sense, bathe, put on some clean clothes, good, good ideas. Um, especially, can I just say, if you're trying to attract a potential suitor, like these are really good ideas. Um, smelling good, washing up, clean clothes, uh, if you're interested in marriage one day. Young men, showering is a really good thing. It really is, it does wonders. Uh, especially, you know, put on a clean shirt, wear some deodorant, all that kind of good stuff. If you're trying to find yourself a young lady and you want to prove that you are worth their time, shower up, please. <laughs> but there's more to it here than Ruth just simply cleaning up after a long day of gleaning. These same steps are what Israelites would do after coming to an end of a period of mourning. David did these same steps after a time of mourning for the death of his child. We see this in 2 Samuel 12, 20. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself, that is to put on some cologne, and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when asked, they set food before him and he ate. So 
this was part of the coming to the end of the mourning period. Ruth had lost her husband, her father-in-law, her brother-in-law, and she had been in a period of mourning. And now that time of mourning is over. So she is washed. She has anointed herself and she has put on clean clothes. And likely the clean clothes mentioned, um, she probably changed out of robes of mourning, you know, specific looking clothes into um, more everyday attire. And so while we don't fully understand the customs and the ways one would initiate a request for leveret marriage, it does appear that that is what's happening here, that this was part of the tradition. It's not really explained to us. It's just mentioned. Naomi tells Ruth to wait until Boaz has finished eating and drinking. Wait until he's in a good mood. It doesn't appear Boaz was drunk or given to drunkenness. It's not really in line with his character here and and the type of man that he is. But he enjoyed God's gifts rightly. We too can labor, eat, drink, rest, and enjoy these good things in such a way that God receives glory. He's the giver of all good gifts. And in Boaz, enjoying these good gifts, God is glorified. Naomi then tells Ruth to observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. This specifically seems to signify a request for the leveret marriage. Ruth's answer is telling of her willingness and even awareness of what is happening. So maybe these customs were unusual a little bit to her as a foreigner, um, being that she's from Moaz, but she seems to understand what's going on. So maybe Naomi has added some extra instructions that the, the uh, narrator hasn't uh, shared with us. And so she is willing and submits to Naomi's plan. These two ladies are casting themselves upon the goodness, the kindness, and the integrity of Boaz. If they have misjudged him in any way, there is a tremendous amount of danger that awaits Ruth here. There's great risk here. And you and I as believers in Christ have cast ourselves by faith upon the goodness and kindness and integrity of Christ. We've turned to his redeeming power as our only hope. He is our perfect Boaz, the truer Boaz, and we can joyfully lean on his character. Just as we see how Naomi and Ruth lean on the character of Boaz in this plan. So Ruth is committed to Naomi's plan, and now we'll see as we turn our attention to the proposal um, that she has a a proposition. Uh, She proposes to Boaz, and she does it boldly. Let's look at verses 6 through 9 here. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So Ruth followed Naomi's instructions. She went to the threshing floor. She watched Boaz. And when he had eaten and drunk, his heart being merry, he went to sleep. She followed him and uncovered his feet. And she laid down to sleep. Sometime he awoke later and he had a start. He was, he was uh, surprised. You know, I'll be honest. Um, if I'm laying down to sleep and someone uncovers my feet, I would probably wake up. I don't know about you, but... Um, I'm the type where if I hear a noise, I wake up. If I hear even like Chanel start breathing differently, I wake up. Uh, And I'm I'm just usually a very light sleeper. And sometimes Chanel will touch my feet with her feet, which are basically blocks of ice. 
And I jump and say, who are you? No, just kidding. No, but it does make me jump. It's dark out. Boaz doesn't recognize Ruth, so he calls out, who are you? I don't know if he was uh, wondering if it was one of the other women that were around the threshing floor and uh, doing something inappropriate and what, what was going on through his, in his mind, I don't know. Probably nothing more than just being scared. But um, we see what happens next. Ruth just goes for it. She lays out her proposal. Everything that she's done up to this moment, from cleaning herself and uh, her clothing to her actions at the threshing floor, were done to communicate her need and her request to Boaz. And here is her proposal. She said, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Her request uses the same language that Boaz used about her in chapter 2. That she had sought refuge under the wings of God. She then kind of turns that in reference to Boaz. Jared Wilson writes, The word for wings can also mean the edges of a garment or covering. And to spread one's covering over a woman can mean to marry her. We see this drawn out elsewhere in the Old Testament, this idiom for marriage. Ezekiel 16, verse 8 says, When I passed by you again, this is God speaking, and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. The language of marriage here in Ezekiel describes God's caring covenantal love for his people. And we might shy away from language like this, um, this language of our relationship with God. But this language of love, union, and marriage is all over the scriptures. We spoke last week about God's provision. We saw Boaz praise Ruth for seeking refuge under God's wings. And this imagery speaks of a baby chick seeking shelter under the wings of its mother. Seeking protection, safety, and nourishment. The imagery of this is expanded in Ruth and Ezekiel to refer to the actions of the groom protecting and providing for his bride. And this imagery is not just found here in the Old Testament as well, but we see in the New Testament uh, imagery of marriage and the wedding in regard to our relationship with God and to Christ. Revelation 19, 7 through 9, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride His church has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So in this, we see a marriage celebration. But we also see uh, alluded to our our new clothes that we have been given the righteousness um, of Christ that we are clothed in. So there's a marriage celebration. This is a feast like no other. And this is what awaits us, the bride of Christ. We, the church, his bride, find rest. We find comfort. We find protection and provision under the wings of Christ. He has covered us. Ruth's proposal is bold, but it's not out of line. She has followed Naomi's instructions. And while we don't fully grasp the cultural actions here, uh, there is no evidence to state that this wasn't normal for a leveret marriage. Do we have uh, rain coming down? <laughs> we should probably put a mark on that chair. That, that one specifically gets wet. So again, Ruth's proposal is bold, but it's born out of faith. She is fully trusting in God's redemptive purposes for her life here. She is trusting in Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. 
I believe this shows us something more about grace and favor, like we looked at last week. This shows us a little bit more about it. As those who have received God's grace, those who have believed the good news of Jesus and have trusted in him alone for salvation, we can approach God boldly. This doesn't mean irreverently or disrespectfully. It means we can come to him with confidence. We can approach him with boldness. Not disrespectfully, but it's how he has actually told us to approach him. Can't be disrespectful if this is the way he's actually invited us to come to him. Okay. God is our father and because of grace we can come to him and state our need. Just like Ruth stated her need and request for Boaz. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence or boldness. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our relationship to the Father because of what Christ has done is one of freedom. It's a relationship of family. So we can come to the Father with confidence, with boldness, because he is our Father. Boldness here, both in Ruth's situation as well in our own, is a boldness that is born out of relationship. If it wasn't relationship, if this was just merely religious activity, there wouldn't be any cause for boldness or confidence, right? Because we'd be coming to earn something. We'd be coming to maybe be declared righteous. And so we would always be wondering if we could be found to be proven right or uh, have earned his, his love or something. You know, if you spend any time looking into other religions like Islam, what you'll find is that there is always this sense of apprehension because you can get to the end of your life living perfectly and still not have any confidence that you're right or that you will earn enough favor to enter into paradise. We can come in confidence because we start from a place of relationship. Back to the story here. What is Boaz's response going to be? Under certain circumstances, the kinsman redeemer, uh, like I mentioned, the brother, would have been required to marry the widow, but not in Ruth's situation. Boaz was not required to do anything here. He was not the brother of Malon, her husband. He was a kinsman redeemer, being part of the family of Elimelech, but he was not required to marry her. So would he be willing? As we turn to the next Hallmark movie, uh, we, we find the answer to that, the promise. So much better than a Hallmark movie, let's be honest. Beginning in verse 10, we find out how Boaz responds, and in his response, we see a promise. Boaz is not put off by Ruth's boldness. In fact, he's pleased by her request. He blesses her, saying, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. The kindness he's referring to is Ruth's desire to provide Naomi an heir for their land by marrying Boaz. He respects her for not pursuing younger men. This phrase actually means choice men, men who were both younger and more attractive and maybe had better prospects. Perhaps Boaz wasn't the best looking. We, we just don't know. He's obviously older than her. We see that in how he addresses her. He constantly calls her daughter, um, kind of speaking of an age difference there, though we don't know how much older. There's speculation on that on the Internet, but the scriptures are silent on that. Ruth hasn't pursued young. She hasn't pursued riches. She hasn't pursued attractions or passions. 
Her desire is grounded in family loyalty. Her love for Naomi. Perhaps she could have found a husband, uh, but that would have meant that Naomi would have to sell their family land, and Elimelech's line would be without an heir. Boaz respects the way she puts the needs of the family above what could have been her own desires. Of course, I want to point out there is love for Boaz as well. Ruth has seen the goodness and kindness of Boaz, and I believe that she's been drawn to him. The point I'm making in all of this is that this love story that we see unfolding in front of us is not like the love stories of today. This love is not superficial. It's based in a desire for what's best for others. In verses 11 through 13, we have the promise of Boaz. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Until the morning. So uh, here's some tension. Boaz promises to do what he, can, what he can to make sure that Ruth has a redeemer. And the plot twist here is that he's not first in line to be the redeemer. There's one who is nearer. He promises to investigate this as soon as he is able. He speaks to her um, out of honor. He's honored by her request and the way that she has handled this. We see in this as well that his first priority is to make sure that Ruth and Naomi are cared for. He's going to make sure that they're provided for, whether it's him or this nearer uh, redeemer. And so he would respect the wishes of the nearer redeemer. And though we don't have a picture into what Boaz was thinking in this moment, I think we see by his actions um, that he is a man who trusts the Lord. He's trusting that everything is going to work out here. Boaz's promise is built on the foundation of his trust in God. He says, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you as surely as God lives. And because he lives, I will do it. Meaning that his promise is based on the surety of God. Boaz lives not doing what is right in his own eyes like the rest of Israel. He lives his life as one who trusts and believes God. And so his desire was to fulfill the purposes of the law for Ruth's life. Let's continue with verses 14 through 18. So, he lay, so she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out. He measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Naomi and Ruth are wise to trust Boaz here. And they're proven right in their trust. Boaz sets out to accomplish his promise. The way he sends Ruth home speaks of his desire to protect and provide for Ruth and Naomi. Boaz, in a somewhat awkward translation, tells Ruth, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Boaz is speaking to Ruth here. And he is guarding her reputation and her dignity. He sends her away before one could recognize another. So it's still dark out. He's not seeking to exploit her shame, but to cover it. 
He also sends her home with provision. Again, his generosity comes into sight here. He asks for her garment. This would be an outer garment, like a shawl or a cloak. She holds it out and fills it with six measures of barley. We're not exactly sure how much six measures is. Uh, There was a lot of speculation on that, and the reality is we just don't know. It's not an actual unit of measurement. So the amount doesn't matter so much as the message that it sends. So this is done for a twofold reason. In sending her away with grain, he again protects her dignity. This single woman, now walking home in the dark hours of morning from the threshing floor, would look out of place naturally. So not to cause the appearance of any kind of impropriety, he gives her grain. Onlookers wouldn't draw any wrong conclusions that she had committed some kind of sexual sin. And second, and more importantly, it sends a message to Naomi. Notice in verse 17, Ruth mentions that this was for her mother-in-law. It communicates to Naomi that her plan had worked. Some scholars dug deep into every facet of this, from the meaning of the number six, to the meaning of barley, to the meaning of the garment. I will simply say this. It appears to communicate to Naomi that the mission was successful. He's saying, Naomi, you can rest. The work is now in my hands. Naomi asked Ruth, how did you fare, my daughter? The original language seems to signify a deeper question. More literally, it's, who are you, my daughter? Naomi is asking about the plan. Did it work? Has your status in life changed? What an incredible change is taking place in the lives of these two women. Naomi said in chapter 1 that she was returning to Bethlehem empty and bitter. She said to call her Mara, which means bitterness. Here, in just a few short weeks, she is no longer empty but full. She has abundance, and though she thought her family line was broken, it's about to be restored. The land of her husband will be sold to the Redeemer, and Ruth will be married, and her family line will continue. And so her mourning has been turned to rejoicing. And in the final verse, Ruth is told to take it easy, to rest. The man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Boaz is a man of high character. He will do all that he sets out to to do. He will not rest until Ruth is able to rest, until she's able to be at ease. And this was the purpose of what Naomi set out to do, to bring Ruth to a place of rest. And now Boaz will not rest until that happens. And we see the gospel throughout all of this. Let's again look at the gospel in Ruth. As we continue to look through Boaz, we see the gospel of Jesus, who is our redeemer, the truer Boaz, who will complete his work in us. He works to fill us with his blessings. And he turns us into people who love like he loves. He turns our mourning into joy. Just as Boaz would cover Ruth with the edge of his garment to cover her under his wings, so too Jesus covers us. He covers our shame. He draws us under his wings for shelter, provision, protection, and care. He desires us, his church, as his bride. He desires us. And like Boaz, he doesn't send us away empty. Rather, he pours out blessings. He satisfies. And looking forward to Jesus, the prophet Joel wrote, speaking of how Jesus would satisfy and cover our shame in Joel 2, verse 23. Uh, 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord, your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And in Hebrews 12, too, we see that Jesus took our shame. 
looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What does this verse mean? Jesus, with joy set before him, took our shame upon himself. He bore it for us. And in doing so, he said to shame, you don't even compare to the joy that is set before me. He looked forward with joy to the people, his bride, you and I, whom he would redeem. And joy at being with the Father again. Shame, which causes so many of us to cower in fear, doesn't compare to the power of joy that Jesus had set before him. He, he bore all of this for us. He took our shame, and in doing so, he defeated it. He destroys our shame. Jesus takes the cross, a weapon of shame. People who were crucified were crucified naked, exposed for all to see. And he makes it the greatest power to change lives. The power of the gospel destroys our shame. And therefore, when you feel shame, you can look at the accuser. You can say to the accuser, the enemy, you can say, my shame was defeated on the cross. He doesn't just take our shame. He covers us in his sacrifice so that the image of God becomes our reputation. And he crowns us with loving kindness and satisfies us with good. Psalm 103, the first five verses, this is my favorite psalm, says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. Finally, the last gospel glimpse that we get in this chapter in in Ruth 3, uh, it began, verse 1, with Naomi saying, should I not seek your rest? And ends with her saying, Boaz wouldn't rest until this was completed. Boaz was determined. We see this in Jesus as well. Jesus determined to go to the cross on our behalf. He worked so we could rest. His face was set like flint. He was going to accomplish all that he had set out to do. Isaiah prophesied about Jesus, saying in Isaiah 50, verse 7, But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. And in Luke 9, 51, we see this fulfilled. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Boaz was willing and able to redeem Ruth. And he set about doing just that. Jesus also was willing and able, and probably more so. In fact, he alone was truly willing and able. He was willing. He did this out of his abundant love for us, and he was able. He was the perfect sinless God-man, 100% God and 100% man. The only one who could sacrifice himself on our behalf, becoming a curse for us and removing our sinful record. He gives us his perfect obedience. Whereas Boaz couldn't be 100% certain that his plan to redeem would work, Jesus could. This is why the prophet Isaiah could prophesy of Jesus, I know that I shall not be put to shame. Jesus could be 100% sure that going to the cross would work. Because he was without sin. And he was 100% sure of the Father's love and plan. 
And Jesus finished his work on the cross. Rest has been won for you and I. Everything that we need has been won. And so we can look to our greater and truer Boaz, knowing that he who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it. He worked so we can rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We thank you that he was willing and able to redeem us. We thank you for the simple words, it is finished. Because they still ring true today. There is no more work left to be accomplished. He did it all. The work is complete. Father, help us to rest in that, knowing that Jesus has finished it all. And this means that we can live and we can love freely because we are in relationship with you, our Heavenly Father. We can love one another because there's nothing remaining for us to earn or work for. We can just live it out. Live it out of freedom. Live it out of joy. Knowing that we can just simply love one another. We can just walk in the works that you have prepared for us beforehand because they don't earn anything. They matter, but they don't earn. They're just a fruit and a celebration of what has already been done. Lord, help us to keep the joy set before us that one day we will be with you eternally. That we will have everlasting life. We thank you for our perfect Boaz, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.